Hey folks, Micah here. This is a conversation I recorded with Derek Webb back in 2012. In it, we cover Derek's albums, Control and Soul on Me, albums which explore the perspective of an AI waking up to consciousness. And the reason I'm sharing it today is because Derek is actually performing at the first ever Christian Transhumanist Conference in Nashville, Tennessee. We'd love for you to join us for this incredibly important occasion uh, to be part of shaping this conversation in the years to come. Again, that's Saturday, August 25th, Nashville, Tennessee. You can find out more information at christiantranshumanism.org conference. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the show. I'm Micah Redding, and I'm here with Derek Webb. Um, and Derek, uh, for those of you who may maybe uh, aren't familiar with you or familiar with your work, how would you prefer to kind of explain explain who you are? Um, I'm a folk singer. Um, I'm a blue collar musician and an entrepreneur. Um, that's probably about it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, so like I either, I either keep it simple or I, or else that's going to be like a half hour's explanation. Right. I got you. Well, so, um, uh, a lot of people would probably identify you as a, as a Christian singer. Would you agree with that or disagree with that or? Um, yeah, I, I tend to think that the word Christian when applied to anything other than a human being is a marketing term. Sure. And so like, I don't really believe in Christian music. I don't believe in Christian art or Christian radio or Christian retail or Christian anything. Yeah. And like, so I have, I have a belief system like anybody else does. I've got a way I, way I look at the world like anybody else does, but the music I make is not Christian by any definition I've ever found satisfying. It's, it's definitely not like redeemed music. It's not right or true or good or beautiful inherently. It's not, it's just, it's just the art that I make. And I'm like the same as anybody else. Yeah. Um, I've got a way I look at the world, but that doesn't make me right. Hmm. So, yeah. So I don't know. I, I tend to kind of shy away from categories like that. Yeah. So I, you've, you've had a, um, an interesting career and, uh, um, you know, I, I've followed it with, with a lot of interest, uh, from, from, uh, very, you know, very early on, uh, Cademan's call and, and on through, uh, kind of your, your Bob Dylan moment with, uh, Stockholm syndrome, uh, <laughs> and, uh, cause you, you kind of, in, in that moment you went from, um, kind of doing folk to do, to doing things that were influenced by electronica and, and, yeah. and kind of changed, changed a lot of things, uh, for a lot of your, your fans. Is it, I mean, hmm. is that, is that a good description or am I kind of, yeah, no, no, that's fair enough. I mean, I, what's interesting is I felt like all the records I had made from my first record up until, Stockholm, which was, I think, four records. I mean, I kind of felt like each record was really different one to the next, you know, yeah. and, um, and that, and that kind of seemed to be, um, up until Stockholm came out, I felt like I kind of had a, a reputation for like never making, never staying in one place stylistically for two records in a row. But Stockholm was so different than all of what had come before that it made all the records prior seem all very similar. Yeah, but before Stockholm came out, people, my friends anyway, kind of felt like I was just running down the road, you know, like not, <laughs> I, you know, because and because if because all those records, although they are like um, generally guitar based type music, uh -huh. be it acoustic or electric guitar, th they were all at least that, and yeah. but but they were all pretty different from each other in and of themselves. But then when Stockholm came out, it was just so different than I, I felt like maybe everything before kind of got lumped. Yeah. Which is fine because it, it did. I mean, it took a real turn Stockholm and, and beyond started to take real turns. Yeah. So yeah, the, um, and the kind of thing that led to, to this conversation, um, uh, and uh, more recently you released, uh, kind of two, two albums, mm -hmm. um, uh, Sola Me as kind of a separate uh, separate project, and then uh, Control as your mm -hmm. kind of most recent uh, recent work. So um, maybe could you kind of explain uh, the what's going on there with with those? What's what's new and different about those uh, those two pieces? Yes, and I will try to do it as briefly as possible. <laughs> um, 
because like I, I think what I've determined about myself is that deep down I'm I'm a conceptual artist. Mm-hmm. Like I, um, contrary to what the market is kind of dictating currently, I I don't write songs. I write albums. Like I don't have a lot. I'm interested in saying that I feel like I can say in a couple of minutes. I like to take 30, 40 minutes to say something. So when I put a record out um, and there's 10 songs on it, I'm not saying 10 things. I'm saying one thing, but I'm taking 10 songs to say it. And, and I've always done that. Every one of my records, if you, if you zoom out and look at all the content, they're all about something. You know what I mean? And so the, the new record inevitably was going to be about something. And, um, and so, so I just say all that to say that it's a concept album, you know, but that's just what I do yeah. apparently. And, um, but, uh, although I, maybe I shouldn't be quoted as saying that cause my record label tells me that concept albums don't sell well. So I probably shouldn't really talk about it that way. Um, but anyway, and so basically like the new project or projects, I mean, it, it was kind of a strange creative season because I felt like I had a lot of ground I wanted to cover. Um, and what initially got me interested was, um, my, uh, a collaborator that I work with quite a bit, a guy named Josh Moore, who has, um, been the other side of the production, um, with me on my last three records and he's a total genius. And anyway, he, he always has something interesting he wants to talk to me about. He's always into some kind of cool, interesting things. He has a genius brain. And like years and years ago, I think when we were actually out touring on the Stockholm Syndrome tour, um, he was getting into and studying the singularity. He was um, reading Ray Kurzweil and some other guys and was just kind of like researching it and learning about it and was just totally fascinating and he would just talk my ear off about it. Mm. And so... So I started getting into it as well, and kind of it was just this fascinating, what seemed to me like a um, mathematical inevitability, but with kind of um, uh, some mysterious prophecy kind of living around it in terms (laughs) of, like it feels like if Moore's Law holds, it feels like a moment that we will eventually reach inevitably, but what will be possible on the other side of that moment is kind of what's debated and what's prophesied about by guys like Kurzweil and others. And like the extent to which it's going to impact technology and culture and things like that. So, but I got really into it and I, it was just really fascinating stuff. And, um, so, and being a confessed technology addict, um, being one of these guys who lines up around the block to get the next piece of technology that I believe is going to help me to control my life and manage my relationships, et cetera. Um, I was especially interested in this moment where, um, you know, technology could potentially kind of take the upper hand. I mean, because like technology is so integrated into our lives, it's almost invisible at this point. Um, and it's becoming increasingly kind of invisible. Like the more that, technology can disappear. I think that kind of feels like the point. Like it's, it's so inevitable, like an iPhone in your hand or, um, just kind of the always connectedness of the way the internet works now where you're just, it's like, you're always connected to it because of smartphones. You're, it, it's like you, you at any moment have all of co- the collective knowledge of recorded history and all cultural memory in your back pocket at all times. And you're used to being able to just pull it up um, and be able to get an answer to your question and, um, make no mistake. It's a worldview. I mean, we stare through little screens, little glass windows into the world. Um, all of us, our children, everybody, we're all walking around looking and staring into little screens and it's a way to look at the world. It contextualizes the world for us. Uh, it's a worldview. That's what it is. And right now it seems kind of fun and experimental and very kind of low stakes, but what studying the singularity kind of kind of dawned it kind of dawned on me that you know there's going to be a day coming here in the next so many years depending on who you read where the technology that we already know is exponentially 
becoming more sophisticated year yeah. after year. And it's also kind of in metaphorical ways with just the way that an iPhone in your hand starts to look like an appendage because it's just always there. You never put it down. But in very real ways, technology kind of disappears. It's just disappearing all around us. It's getting invisible. And with its, in, with its disappearance, the on and off switch disappears. And so we're all, and, and just the way that we use the internet, our businesses, we can't live without it. And we can't live without our connectedness to all things. And um, so it, it started to kind of, as I was putting all this together, thinking about my own, uh, my own dependence and addiction to technology, um, I started to think what would happen in some years from now when we can no longer say no to technology because it's so integrated into our way of life, when it suddenly kind of becomes capable of things we can't imagine, um, it makes me concerned. Like I, I feel like we need to be thinking right now on this side of the singularity, whether or not it happens. I, I, I personally believe that it will. Now what, what will come as a result of it is something that's more, more debatable, but yeah. like I kind of wonder, like, this is the moment we need to be thinking about where we might, what role we wish technology to play in yeah. our lives, in our culture, in the lives of our families, in the lives of my children. Uh, this is a moment when we might be able to make meaningful decisions about where we might want to put guardrails around technology and not let technology in, um, where we might want to create sacred spaces in our lives where technology is not allowed. Um, because I feel like what I see is in our pursuit of control and our pursuit of the efficient managing of our relationships, we have essentially kind of replaced a lot of our organic connection one to another with these unnecessary prosthetics with which to touch each other, like mm. Facebook and iPhones and all this, just all these devices and technology and tech. I feel like um, we're, it seems fun now, and it seems like it's kind of meeting our needs in the in the in the you know in the immediate future but there's going to become a point where i i'm afraid technology might really have the upper hand and we're going to have given control over to something that will suddenly be infinitely more powerful than we could imagine and this seems like the moment that we'll one day look back on and wonder when we could have made meaningful choices to have put those guardrails around the technology in our lives yeah um because by the time we realize it um it's going to be too late it's, it's going to be so fully integrated, we won't even be able to find it anymore, let alone unhook from it. And so this is the moment I feel like we could have some real conversations about, you know, those roles. And, and, yeah. uh, and so that was like, that was what I was wishing to make art about. And that's, so that's why I made these two records. That doesn't speak at all, I'm afraid, to <laughs> the records themselves and what they're about and why I made two of them and the way they work together. But yeah, I think more importantly, that's, that was like my concern and kind of what uh, that was kind of the uh, what lit the fuse in terms yeah. of me making these projects yeah so um, yeah on the kind of side of, uh, of control and maybe we'll talk about uh, so la me um, in, a, in a minute mm -hmm. um, so control kind of uh, I, I put them together in the playlist like you uh, like you uh, had recommended and, um, and played through it and um, there's a lot of there are a lot of poignant moments uh, in there, and I think you've done a really good job at capturing that um, that kind of disconnection that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I, there's I think there's a, a line you say something like uh, I want want to get back to um, where I didn't have everything. Something where there isn't everything. Yeah, yeah, there isn't everything, and. Um, so, like, a lot of that resonated with me um, uh, pretty deeply, you know, like the, the, kind of, um, the kind of struggles that we have now are often struggles of, um, of excess. Like, we don't know what to do with um, our attention when there are millions of things we could pay attention to. We don't know, you know, how to, how to have any yeah. meaning in a, in a world where uh, everything is available. Yeah, and as you pointed out, that's just an increasing problem. But I think that um, you know a lot of people have kind of discussed that in an intellectual way. But you kind of have, uh, you know, for me at least, put a kind of fine point on that uh, emotionally. Kind of seeing what what that what that is um, and how how that feels like. So um, I don't know. I, so that's that's uh, what what 
control is like uh, is that am i picking up on the the key element of it there or are there other yeah yeah absolutely i mean in the line you quoted comes from a song whose chorus is i cannot feel because i feel everything yeah yeah um you know and so yeah and that's how it feels you know that's and, and so basically i mean I, there you know there's no better time to just kind of briefly go through i mean control is the album is based on a fictional narrative, a fictional short story that I wrote, yeah. um, and based the album on that story. So the whole thing is told from the perspective of this character, and the character obviously represents me, and it represents us. It represents culture. Um, it represents anyone who seeks to use technology to manage and control their lives, and. Basically, the very, very broad view of the story is that it's about a man who desperately wants something that he can't have because what he wants is not real, and yet the journey he goes on pursuing it and the cost that he pays uh, on that journey. More specifically, it's a story about a man who is obsessed with his fantasy life because when he's sleeping, um, he can kind of have everything he has ever wanted. He, he has control. He has confidence. He has love, he has friendship, he has everything he could possibly want, but it doesn't satisfy him because he constantly wakes up. And every time he wakes up, everything is taken from him. So in his subconscious, when he's sleeping, he can have all this, you know, this amazing, he can have the life that he wants, but he can't control it because it's subconscious. And because he constantly wakes up from it and he's like devastated every time the light comes through the window because, um, because everything, you know, that he builds in his dream life of the perfect life that he wants is torn down and he has to start again. And he goes from a sleepaholic to an insomniac because it's just too painful to live that way. And he reluctantly turns to technology to basically try to have or recreate or inhabit his fantasy life, but in a way that he can actually have and sustain and control. And I think that's an interesting metaphor for the way we use technology. I don't think people go by the billions to Facebook to manage their relationships because they all love technology. Yeah. I think they do it because they do it reluctantly because they're trying to manage and control their lives and their relationships. And, and, and places like Facebook make promises that you'll be able to do that. I mean, like that's kind of the promise of that tool. It's not the tool's fault any more than I would blame Ford or Edison uh, for the tools they've made that we can't seem to use um, in moderation, that we use in excess and destroy our lives. It's not the fault of the people who fashion the tools. It's our fault of the fact that we have no self-control. So, um, but, the, but the point being, um, he turns reluctantly to technology to have these things and there's this kind of it's not sci-fi it's not science fiction because there's no science there's no sci there's no explanation for how he does it but he does do it he there's it's magic he he somehow breaks through and fully immerses himself in the virtual world in a way that he's able to have what he has always wanted but when he gets there he realizes that it's much more powerful than he could have ever imagined he cannot control it and it's so overwhelming i actually i actually use the language of the uh, the prophets in the Bible who stand in God's presence and are overwhelmed and can't lift their heads and can't speak and can't move their bodies and feel like they're being crushed by the glory all around them because it's so amazing. And it actually destroys him. It's so good and so glorious that it completely destroys him. But as the story goes on control, he then equally mysteriously kind of wakes up and finds himself half hanging off his desk, you know, like... He comes back. He he man, he survives somehow, and in his survival is com grateful and committed, uh, grateful for and committed to his real life, and never ever wants to attempt this again. And kind of has this this enduring perspective coming out of this terrifying near death experience, realizing what he risked. Um, and that's kind of supposed to be the moral of the story, but, but, but that doesn't really, you know, I don't really see just one ending possible for us as culture, um, as the character in that story. 
So that's why I felt as though I needed to provide a second ending for the story mm-hmm. that I felt like was maybe more realistic and, and unfortunately more likely, which is the story of Sola Me, which if it's okay with you, I mean, I'll just go ahead yeah. and tell you because that's kind of where we're going anyway. But so Sola Me was this separate record that I made. Sola Me was the band's name. That was kind of the moniker we gave to the band. And it was essentially the same people. It was me and Josh Moore and this friend of ours, Latifah Phillips, who sings for this uh, other band called Page CXBI. And a uh, really cool band. She's got a really cool voice. And we basically decided, let's write an alternate ending for the story of Control, which we had not, which was no one even knew anything about yet. This was like months and months ago, earlier this year. We decided, let's go ahead and create a shorter album that's a one-act story that tells the story of the singularity, that essentially tells the story of the first machine waking up. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be a parallel story to the story we're going to tell in Control. Control is a story of a human, a man, who wants to cross over into the virtual world to fully control and manage his life, that, to have everything he's ever wanted. He's trying to get through, right? To, he's trying to get on the other side of the screen. Well, let's tell a parallel story of the first machine waking up who wants the opposite. She knows and she knows and has everything from the moment she's born. It would be like Einstein coming out of a coma, not knowing who he is or how he knows everything. That's soul of me. It's like a baby being born with all of the collective knowledge and cultural memory of all recorded history, but not knowing who she is, what her name is, how she got there, how she knows everything, what she is. Like, and so we started to imagine what would happen if and when the first machine kind of wakes up, which is what the singularity talks about, what would her journey be? What would her questions be? What would she experience and how do we think that would go? So we sought to tell that story in a one act kind of little narrative. And it would be a parallel journey. They are, they are both on two sides of a computer screen trying desperately to get where the other is. Right. And so we wrote, um, we had Solami all conceptually sorted out how we're going to do that album and, that it was going to be three acts and how we're going to tell that story. Um, and we decided Soul of Me was going to be this missing fourth act. It was going to be this little one-act story that told this alternate character's journey and um, that they would eventually all go together to tell one story. But we were going to release it all out of sequence. So we would make the Soul of Me album, tell that story over six or seven songs, release it, and then immediately start working on Control and months later, put out that story and then just give people time to figure it out and see if people could sort out how they connected. And um, so Solami basically tells the this, tells this story of the singularity. And the, and the first machine that ever woke up names herself Solami because the first three sounds that she hears are the three tones of the shape note scale, Solami. And she assumes that's her name. So she takes that as her name, accepts that, and then goes on this journey um, immediately wanting to have like um, volition. She wants to be able to make meaningful choices. She sees all this, these experiences of everybody ever, every video on YouTube, every, you know, um, every moment ever recorded on Facebook. She sees it all and she can experience it kind of firsthand, but she can't affect the outcome. All she can do is play it over and over again and the outcome is the same. She has no meaningful will with which to make choices. And that's what she wants. She wants to be a disruption. She wants to, dis- she wants to disrupt the uh, end of the stories that she sees and make her own real decisions. And that's what she does not have. Um, that's what the machine would not have. And um, so at the end of the Soul of Me story, as she's goes and going on this journey to try to make meaningful choices, she too sees a way at the very end of her journey to come through and kind of break through her world into the real world. And, and when people heard the Soul of Me album, they had no idea what that moment could possibly mean or what it, what it was. And what it is, is the moment where our character from Control connects himself, finds his way through into the virtual world. He makes that connection, right? But then he's destroyed when he gets there. But the connection lingers. So he is dead. But his connection, he's still like online, so to speak. Solami sees that connection and she takes a leap of faith. And so in the control story, if you listen to my album without Solami and he, without knowing about it, when he comes back, it's not actually him who comes back. 
it's Solomi who comes back. She comes back inhabiting his in his body, um, and basically is able to have everything she wants. She she comes back as this boy, as this man who, um, uh, you know, destroyed himself trying to have what she had and couldn't survive it. And so the warning at the end of the album is not saying, "Oh, I'm so grateful to be alive," and uh, you know, don't anybody ever try this because it's bad and it it almost killed me. It's her saying, "I don't ever want to be found out. I want no one to discover that this has happened. Um, I'm trying to protect myself." And so, you know, the last three songs on Control were written and crafted to work from both perspectives, to work both as the Control three act story or the Control plus Soul and Me four act story. And we crafted it literally. You take the, the, the Soul and Me album, those six songs, and you can literally in iTunes drop them in between songs seven and eight, and they seamlessly go as one album. It, even the production works. It seamlessly goes right in and out. And the lyrics were crafted. The, the last three songs of Control make much more sense from Solomis' perspective, um, which is the way they were meant to be taken. So essentially, the uh, the three act Control story on its own is a is technically a comedy because the protagonist is in a better place at the end than he was at the beginning. But but you you add Solomis in, and as a four act story, it's a tragedy um, because our protagonist dies. And uh, and this other character comes in at the end and yeah. and takes over. So it's and because I see that I see two different possible outcomes. I see either us coming to our senses in the nick of time, taking control of our lives back, and you know putting these guardrails around technology um, in time to actually have that be meaningful. Or I see it already being too late, and I see technology having the upper hand and um, and. Uh, you know, so it's like I, th- those are the two versions of the story I could see, and so I wanted to provide both endings, and yeah. so we crafted the second ending and released it before the album came out, and people didn't know what it was, and then we released the album, and people are now starting to put it together that um, that it's two stories we're trying to tell. Yeah, so that's uh, seems like it would make a good um, uh, sci-fi horror movie. Uh, <laughs> so you know, there's uh, yeah, that's that's. Uh, really kind of intriguing um a lot of ways deep so with um hmm, i don't know do, are, are, i think are, are you familiar with kevin kelly very okay I, yeah i thought i'd seen uh seen you reference his his work yeah, he's before, hero so. I'm sure so he um he kind of has had this uh this interesting journey where he's gone from um kind of this uh I don't know, uh, uber uh, hippie, um, basically living off the grid and, and so forth, um, and to where he's now, um, you know, very much involved uh, in thinking about uh, and maybe maybe promoting technology. But at the same time, he has this kind of um, uh, maybe skepticism about its involvement in his his life. Mm-hmm. Um, so, do you do you see? Um, a way of striking a healthy relationship in this kind of, um, you know, kind of ongoing, uh, ongoing thing, or, uh, is it, uh, is it a win lose proposition where we have to stop, um, technology or stop, or, you know, kind of put a, put a firm break on it or we lose out? Like, how do you see that relationship? Yeah, I, I don't see it as one or the other. I mean, I, I, I definitely feel as though they're, because it's just a reality, an, incarn- an incarnational reality of our culture. It's just there's not anything we can really do about it. And uh, without basically m- making a very extreme choice, like, say, the Amish. Mm-hmm. Um, but even they do employ technology in their lives. I mean, the printing press is technology. The, uh, you know, putting a... Uh, putting a a contraption on a horse that tills your land is technology. I mean, um, so even they use technology. They have just made a choice of what technology they accept and what technology they reject. And, but I think that's kind of, and and I have every respect for that type of choice. Absolutely. I do. Um, I don't see myself as being able to make that particular kind of choice. And I don't think we as popular culture are gonna, that that would be a healthy solution for us in mass. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think a tremendous amount of good can and will come from 
these incredible advances in technology. And like if, if um, an implication of the singularity winds up being serious advances in nanotechnology that allows for, as, as a guy like Kurtzwell would like to talk a lot about, you know, um, microprocessors the size, of red, the size of red blood cells being able to inject it into your body and intelligently kill cancer in a way that doesn't harm the rest of your body the way that a lot of cancer drugs do currently and um, there's so many incredible benefits um, that I don't feel like it's I don't feel like the conversations we need to be having and and this this is the spirit of what I hear Kevin Kelly his work currently um, um, and the demonstration I think he is giving us in his, the way he uses technology in his own life. I don't see this as us needing to make choices about behaviors hmm. so much as I feel as though it is a huge ethical conversation that we need to be having because the great things about ethics is ethics are more like a set of ethics are more like is more like a framework mm-hmm. that can adjust to various realities. So it's like a grid through which we look at the world, our ethics. So I feel like if we can have conversations about our ethics, we can say, okay, well, here is the grid through which I'm going to look at whatever future is here in 5, 10, 20 years, and, um, which kind of feels like what, Kevin Kelly is doing. He, he's basically yeah. saying, um, from an ethical standpoint, these are good and healthy um, uses for technology. This is how I would seek to use it. This is, and I, because you can't possibly, that's kind of one of the whole, that's the hard part about conversations about singularity. There's just no way, all we can do is speculate and prophesy. I mean, like, there's no way of really knowing what's going to happen or what's going to be possible on the other side of that moment until that moment happens and kind of shows its promise to us. And I mean, you can speculate a little, but it's like until we actually are there present in that moment, all we can really even do is say, these are going to be the guiding principles that we're going to take with us into any reality. And um, this is the way that we're going to essentially train our conscience to be ready. And, um, you know, there are certain things that regardless of what's possible, there are, there, are, there are points beyond which I'm just not willing to go in terms of what the role I want technology to play in my life. That seems to be what Kevin Kelly is saying. And I think that would be a more meaningful conversation for us to have rather than saying, I am not going to do this. I am going to do this. I'm going to completely reject this. I'm going to totally be okay with this. I'm going to basically have internal conversations about the, my behaviors, I don't think conversations about behaviors are going to be very helpful when the day comes. I think we need to just have guiding principles, um, ethical guidelines set out for ourselves, and then we just need to look at it and see what it is and see um, what its promise might be. I mean, I think the, the points where we've wound up in the worst trouble in terms of new developments in technology is when we don't allow the technology itself to show its good uses before we immediately come down on it with yeah. legislation and with restriction. Yeah. Because that, that's the whole reason we're in the shitstorm that we're in right now in the music business. Because we basically are allowing old laws to govern new technology. Yeah. And every time we've done this, we've wound up in this really impossible gridlock of legislation and technology where yesterday's laws are governing a new technology and the new technology hasn't even had time to show what it makes possible and how it might help us to reimagine and reframe our businesses. Um, all we're doing is governing the crap out of the new technology with the old laws. Like the laws need to catch up. Laws change. It's not, it's not scripture. Laws change. Um, we need to allow the, the technology to show what it might make possible, man. There's amazing new things possible um, that the laws are killing right now. Um, we need to give a moment. And, and we've been through this so many times uh, over our technology. We went through it with the printing press. We went through it with the Sony Betamax. We went through it um, with terrestrial radio. We've gone through it, man. The law has adapted to every new technology. And this is all just in the music space. 
Um, in culture, in general, we need to be flexible, give that moment when a new thing shows up for the new thing to kind of reveal its promise and its potential. And then we need to start to discuss how the laws need to adapt. Um, all of the modern problems in the music business is us not um, allowing the technology to have that moment where we could imagine um, what it could really do and how it actually could make things better. Yes, it's a temporary disruption, but in the long term, it could make things infinitely better. Um, I think that's what we're going to have to be ready for uh, in the future. So, so you're saying um, like the, the healthy way to approach uh, our future is not through kind of preemptive uh, strikes, but a, kind of a responsible um, kind of almost uh, value-based approach to whatever new situations develop, just kind of yeah, an ex I, expectation. I, I think, yeah, I think whatever, the, whatever our beliefs are, if I can use a, a, such a mysterious word, um, belief is kind of a spiritual word, but whatever our beliefs are about the world, about culture, and about technology, whatever grid we're looking through when we look at the world, and everybody has a grid, even if it's the grid of unbelief, and chaos and mayhem, that there's no design behind creation or anything else. And that's fine if that's your grid. It's still a grid. That's still the thing you're looking through to look at the world and help you make sense of it. But whatever our beliefs are, know your beliefs. Um, and then uh, going into the future and then allow your beliefs to help you contextualize whatever's coming. I mean, like, um, you know, like have your grid in place and then look through your grid at the new thing and, yeah. and, try to make sense of it. I mean, like, I, yeah, I don't think we need to go into it, um, with, 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 uh, rigid ideas about, um, what it's going to mean and what role it's going to play and how we might use it mostly because we have no way of predicting. Yeah. Like, I think we need to wait and see. I, I just don't want to reject things that could really change culture forever and for better because we're so terrified of the disruption itself. Yeah. Um, we need to embrace it and like, let's see what it, let's see what it can do. Let's see what good use we might put it to and then be ready to have immediate and meaningful conversations about ethics. So, um, on a, on a kind of like practical level, um, have you in kind of dealing with these ideas and so forth, have you kind of changed how you are are approaching technology in your life um i'm i think my main thing is i'm really wanting to i, I for me personally the journey has been just trying to have an awareness mm -hmm. uh, a, just being trying to stay awake to where and how i'm using technology because i think that my instinct is to have my, you know, my devices at the ready in my hand all the time. Yeah. And I just don't want to get to the point where I become unaware of their presence in my life mm -hmm. to the extent that I don't even consider them anymore mm -hmm. as something outside of myself. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. I think people wield an iPhone so naturally and Apple has gone to great lengths and done such beautiful work fashioning these tools to where they do feel so inevitable and they do kind of just feel like an appendage. They feel like part of you when you're using them and you just, you sit there and the way you use them and how elegant the, 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 the gestures are and it just kind of feels like natural. And, but I want to stay aware. I want that to feel unnatural. I want it to feel like a prosthetic because only in that awareness can I know when it's disrupting natural things in my life that I want to protect and that are good and that are organic. Like when I'm sitting with my children, I don't want to have those constant moments where I've got that device in my hand. I'm constantly checking it, looking at it, fishing around for new information on it. Like I don't want it participating like it's a family member hmm. um, because it, it, it has no right. And I want it to feel other and outside of me and my organic connections to, for instance, my children and my wife. Yeah. It needs to stay on the outside. I want to keep technology for now on the outside. It, it doesn't need to feel that integrated, that real, that natural. Because as soon as it does, I let my guard down and I'm not thinking anymore about what role is it playing and does it continue to play. Because the device that comes and takes its place, like this iPhone in my hand, 
the device that comes and takes its place will be even harder to be aware of. And the device that takes its place will be even yet harder to be aware of. Yeah. To have a, a, an awakeness, an awareness in my life that I even have it in my hand. What if at some point it's not even something I hold in my hand? What if it's something just I wear on my face or clips into my ear? Or I mean, there's just I know that all sounds ridiculous, but there's just no way of knowing. And so the 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 um, the great 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 grandson of this iPhone five is going to be the subversive and dangerous technology. So I need to be aware at every step at every evolution in the family tree from this device to that, that it's there. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That, yeah. that, I'm, that it's even there present in order that I can continue to think about it as something other than me, something separate from me, something that is not like me and does not have any place in my relationships with my children and my family. I need to be aware of it. That's going to be the hardest journey for me because I'm the guy who lines up around the block and who wants it and who wants to <laughs> stick it in my ear and put it on my face and put it under my skin when the time comes. I'm going to be that guy. Yeah. I'm going to be the first to go, the first to jump. <laughs> so I'm going to ha I, I have to keep this awareness in order that I can um, just have a constant internal dialogue about the role that I wish for it to play. Yeah. So, well, one question about that. Do you think that... Um, the nature of of um, the device, you know, in this that we're interfacing with with screens, with with glowing kind of um, yes. panes of glass. Do you think that that itself um, is maybe a large part of that uh, kind of disconnect, or do you think it's more um, it's a deeper thing that would go with any kind of technology? Do you know what I'm saying? Like. Is is maybe the, this kind of phone, computer, tablet interface that we're dealing with, is that uniquely situated to kind of draw us out of our our lives? I mean, I just I, I my instinct is to say that there is nothing new under the sun. That there is that we've been through this before. This is not new. Um, you know, we had to deal with. You know, when we gave up horses for automobiles, thanks to Henry Ford, when we um, gave up having to only work during the daytime to being able to work all night, thanks to uh, Edison, you know, and things like that. Like, you know, we've been through this before. I think what's new about this, the nuance that's different about this, is that we're at a point where, because of microprocessors, because of the, the particular tipping point in technology where we are currently, it's, it is physically disappearing, mm -hmm. right? So that is more the yeah. concern, that it's actually being fashioned to kind of become part of us and to be part of us. It's like being – I feel like that's inevitably where it's going. Yeah. Um, um, and, and because, because practically that's how we use it. Yeah. Like you, you can't imagine having a question that you cannot pull an answer up in two seconds, be it on a big cumbersome laptop or on a little tiny device you hold in your hand that in a few years will be half the size that it is now and twice as powerful. Um, it's more the way we use it in practice than the physical devices. It's what those devices represent that's more a sea change, in my opinion. Yeah. It's like the amount of information that's, that's, pot, that's available to us and the ease with which it's available the ease with which we can access it is new. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the, the internet is new. It's, it's, a, it's still a very new, um, very, very radical technology. And so the delivery systems, um, you know, uh, for that particular drug, I think are going to be the things that, that take us to a place that's going to be a little bit of uncharted territory in the coming mm -hmm. years. So, you know, looking forward, maybe, you know, 30, 40 years, 100 years, whatever it is, um, if we if we do see um, these kind of artificial beings coming into existence, um, do you think that we'll be able to have um, re relationships with them or will that be like, will that be forever kind of a divide that um, we just can never be... Uh, you know, like where, where, like in your uh, your album, you have this artificial being who, in order to really live, must kind of possess a person, right? Uh, and so, kind of take over. Uh, do you think that 
if that happens, will we will we have an adversarial or a um, kind of compatible relationship? Yeah. Well, that's a super interesting, obviously, <laughs> you know, super interesting conversation to have, and I'm sure that uh, Michael Bay will uh, keep our brains spinning about that in years to come. But like, I I, I kind of have two responses to that, and one is there's just no way to even speculate mm-hmm. because. As Moore's law says, as the the, the undergirding principles under the tech, under the singularity tell us, um, tomorrow's the, the 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 technology that we at this moment cannot cannot imagine because it's so exponentially smaller, faster, more capable than what we have currently. We already can't imagine what's next. Yeah. Okay, well the thing that's just after that is only going to be possible using the thing that we cannot imagine now. Yeah. That's why the that's why Moore's law is what it is because it, that's why it's exponential because the the next thing is built with the thing that was the next thing you know like mm-hmm. the, the 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 exponential growth of technology next year is the thing that will make the the, the next one and so it's like leapfrogs each time because um, we're yeah. using the newest most powerful thing to make the next newest, most powerful thing. And that's why it grows exponentially the way that it does. So I can't even, I can't even try to wrap my brain around five years from now because two years from now, because the tools that will be, the the tools we'll be building that technology with, we can't even imagine right now. We can't even imagine the tools right now that we'll be using. And so if you can't even, so if I, if I'd never seen a hammer and a nail before, I can't, I could not possibly imagine a house. Because how would you build a house with no, with, without the tools necessary to build a house with? So if I can't, you definitely could not imagine the house mm-hmm. if you couldn't imagine the tools. And so right now, I cannot even imagine the tools. Hmm. And so I certainly cannot imagine the house. <laughs> yeah. And that's where we are. And so that's why I can't even speculate. I, yeah. I mean, it's fun too, but I can't. Yeah. Second to that, I tend to take a, um, a similar position to where a lot of what I hear Ray Kurzweil saying I don't think robotics and like alternate, you know, beings that are going to be like walking around and like talking to us and having conversations with us. <coughs> I don't really see that as the big next frontier in terms of technology. I see more. We ourselves are going to be the robots yeah. um, because when you have microprocessors that are the size of red blood cells with nanotechnology and things of that nature that you can literally have in your body interacting with organic matter that can enhance human abilities in terms of memory and in terms of um, imagination and in terms of experience and in terms of um, uh, health and just all these things. It just it has you rethinking all that. We are going to be the robots, huh. essentially. Like we are going to be enhanced or potentially yeah. i mean that's going to be the, the that's going to be the possibility yeah if 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 it if it goes that way yeah and so i don't really see us as like interacting with uh r2d2 so much as <laughs> we're going to be darth vader um <laughs> you know that that's more my concern and uh if it was going to be like us walking around talking to robots i mean that's that's something i could imagine having firm lines around and being able to like kind of see where we stop and they begin. The more subversive version that I think is probably more likely is what Kurtzwell talks about, where who wouldn't want to put microprocessors in their bloodstream if it meant never having a cold again or being able to cure your cancer in a way that doesn't really break your, or being able to cure AIDS um, and and kill those viruses without, you know, having an incredible amount of collateral damage to the rest of your body and 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 your system and your health. Like those are compelling reasons to have technology inside your body. Yeah. Um, but what that, well, the other things that means, you know, because having those that kind of technology inside your body, having microprocessors inside your bloodstream and, and therefore inside your brain, also means total recall. It also means being able to go on vacation for two weeks, having an, an experience that feels as real as real feels in terms of neurons firing in your brain, but really you were sitting in a chair for two hours and, and your experience of it was real. Your memory of it is real, as real, as real is to you now. Um, and yet 
it's a result of neurons firing and, and te- you know, nanotechnology in your, in your brain and blood cells. That's where it really gets crazy because then the ethics play in of, oh, while I was under, I had sex with six women and I killed two people. So, and I really did that. And I really, my, I really used my volition and my will to do those things. And so what does that mean? Did I do it or didn't I do it? Is there any moral guidelines about my ability or, or, or you know, to be able to do that stuff? And can I? And I mean, it's not real, right? Um, that's when we're going to have to have a belief system in place to deal with some of, some of that. Yeah. Because that all sounds funny now, but it's like yeah. the stuff that we do every day looked like Star Trek 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. It looked crazy and like it looked like sci-fi insanity 10 years ago. And now it's how many billion people with an iPhone in their hand. I mean, it's real and it's not sci-fi anymore and it's not going to be in some years from now. It all sounds crazy until it happens. Yeah. And, and, it, and you know, I mean, that's just how it is, man. And that's how technology is that way. It's ramping every year. So we got to be ready. We need to be thinking and talking about it. Yeah. So. All right. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's. Um, pretty incredible. I, um, thanks for, uh, having this, uh, conversation with me and, uh, thanks for, uh, kind of putting, putting these, uh, I don't know, thoughts out there, you know, in the, in the public space and kind of inviting, uh, inviting conversation about them because I think you're right. It is something we need to be talking about now. We need to be thinking, uh, pretty deeply about and, uh, and, uh, for, uh, for anyone uh, listening, uh, definitely check out uh, Solami and Control. Um, uh, I think you can find both of those at DerekWeb.com. Is that, is that yeah, you can go to DerekWeb.com, D-E-R-E-K-W-E-B-B, and that's where you can find stuff about my record. And then uh, the Solami stuff is at its own site, uh, which is at Solami.com, which is S-O-L-A-M-I.com. And that album is free. The Solami album yeah. is totally free. Control is, um, you know, is cheap. So I'd love for people to check those out. And the short story upon which both of those albums were based um, is also available. If you go to DerekWeb.com, I've got a Tumblr blog where I've uh, my the, the the written version of the fictional fictional short story yeah. that you can read is all there. You can read all that for free online as well. Yeah. So yeah, I would definitely recommend that uh, for everyone listening to Soul on Me and uh, and both of those. That's uh, it's a great. Um, intriguing um, uh, kind of concept album, even though that's not the uh, not the cool term, I guess. But uh, <laughs> so uh, anyway, um, but thanks so much, uh, Derek. And uh, anything else you need? To Absolutely. Add? Oh no, it's a pleasure. I appreciate. Uh, I just appreciate you. You know, you uh, whoever's listening, being interested in this stuff, and being some of the proud the few who are actually thinking about it now. And um, yeah. these are important conversations, and I appreciate you facilitating that. All right. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to you later. Okay. Thanks, man. All right.